This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to 20 Questions on Deadline. I'm Antonia Blythe, Senior Awards Editor. My guest this week is Betty Gilpin. Known for her performance in wrestling series Glow, for which she was Emmy nominated three times, and recently in the Watergate drama Gaslit, Gilpin will be starring in Three Women, the much-anticipated adaptation of Lisa Tadeo's best-selling non-fiction book. Right now, she's shooting Mrs. Davis, Peacock's new drama series in which she plays a nun fighting an all-powerful artificial intelligence. Gilpin has also written her debut book, a collection of personal essays entitled All the Women in My Brain and Other Concerns, which comes out on September 6th. Betty Gilpin, welcome to 20 Questions on Deadline. So, Thanks for having me. Of course. So you've been a bit busy lately. Um, you've got your <laughs> book of personal essays coming out on September 6th. You're shooting Mrs. Davis. You've already shot Three Women, the adaptation of Lisa Tadeo's book. Yeah. There's a lot going on. Um, but let's start with the book. Yeah. So I believe you put this together. It was sort of brewing and then you put it together during lockdown. Tell me about the process and why now. And it's a set of personal essays. So tell us a bit about it. Yeah. Um, writing was always sort of my... Uh, sort of semi-secret hobby that every once in a while I've, you know, I've published a handful of essays, you know, online, um, but had never really, and it was, writing was a big part of my process as an actor. Um, and I had always had this secret wish to write this book, um, but sort of uh, was too uh, tired and embarrassed to write it. <laughs> and then it kind of took um, lockdown really. Uh, and uh, honestly getting pregnant and having a baby and the post baby hormones of there are no bad ideas, um, achieve your dreams now because society is crumbling and there's a screaming baby who's only going to have more and more needs as the time goes on. So yeah, I sat down on my living room floor uh, like I am now in a sort of hunched over gargoyle position and kind of vomited out this book that's been kind of dormant in me for a long time. Um, yeah, I mean, you've you've written already. This isn't the first time you've published your writing. You've written in Vanity Fair, The Hollywood Reporter, Glamour, um, New York Times. Yeah. So it sounds like, and especially based on my reading of, of your essays, it sounds like you've lived a life with a sort of narrator, like a very writerly 
<laughs> mentality where you've got this this voice in your head or or actually as your book points out multiple voices <laughs> yeah, several <laughs> yes yeah um yeah I uh I had always wanted to do it and um you know I as an actor uh you know I both my parents were actors or are actors still um and I grew up in the theater and studied theater and am very passionate about it and I would always sort of roll my eyes uh snobbily at people who uh sort of found acting as a second hobby and sort of casually strolled in and memorized lines it's like it's about the craft so now I feel that way about authors who are actual authors and <laughs> literary people I'm like I, I know what you feel about me and I, I agree I feel the same about people who just memorize and you know don't know who Brecht is um but uh <laughs> yeah I uh yeah I guess I wrote this book <laughs> <laughs> um you know I wonder if writing the book changed your experience um of working on three women because of course your book is a nonfiction, um, and Lisa Tadeo's book, which was a number one New York Times bestseller, of course, um, yeah. is nonfiction in which she follows three real women, right. um, but writes from their point of view as though it were a novel. Um, yeah. And you play Lena, who is in an unhappy marriage for a decade and then has an affair, which changes her life and really absorbs her um why her did you go after her what was the process of becoming Lena um you know I read three women when it came out and I was sort of obsessed with it um and you know the way that Lisa writes uh is what I dreamed of doing um as an actor and uh, in my friendships and as a writer, which is just say out loud the things that you for so long thought you alone felt. And then in the saying of it out loud, realize, oh my God, this is a universal feeling or uh, so many women are pushing this exact feeling down um, and thinking it's their curse alone. Um, I try to do that in my book, but in a comedic way. Uh, I loved Lena in particular so much and um, that character. And when I found out that they were doing a series, I chased that part <laughs> so embarrassingly hard. Um, and, but I was fully pregnant in quarantine and, uh, you know, did a Zoom with Lisa Tadeo where the frame was this and listener my frame is like the screen cut off uh, below my eyes so that she couldn't tell that I was pregnant because I didn't know when they were going to start shooting and it's a show with a lot of sex scenes so I don't think it did you just pretend pregnant. that your screen was broken and it was tilted weirdly or I just never really mentioned it <laughs> um I was like I'm I'm ready to start you know whenever and then I didn't they went another direction and I was devastated and then that person dropped out I was like please let me make a tape um and uh, luckily it was far enough away from birth that I didn't have to do these sex scenes uh, seven months pregnant. <laughs> Bonus, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, because it's based on a real woman, um, did you by any chance get to meet the real Lena 
and or maybe listen to audio tapes that Lisa had of her? Was there any kind of contact or connection? Uh, no, there wasn't. Um, and I debated asking, you know, I, I that was something that I thought about, you know, I, I was like, do I ask Lisa? Because I know she's still in contact with the real Lena. And, um, you know, I thought, I think it would just A, put me in my head and make the performance bad. And uh, B, I almost, in respect to the real Lena, wanted to um, not bother her. Because <laughs> uh, I think one of the many um, moving things about the book is that you read it and you see yourself in all three women. Um, and, it, you know, it's almost a drinking game of what percent Sloan, Lena, and Maggie are you. Uh, I think that's the pie chart <laughs> um, within all of us. Uh, and I felt so connected to her that on the page that I just, uh, I didn't want anything to muddy that in putting it on screen. You know, I personally remember first reading the book and finding Lena's story really difficult because you can see her falling down these inevitable potholes yeah. where she thinks all her self-worth comes from another person or she throws herself into something so fully that it can only devastate her in the end. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and like you say, those are universal problems that we spend our lives trying not yeah. to do. But I, it's like watching her in slow motion do this, and you're like, oh no, I know. don't walk off the edge of that cliff. <laughs> I know, but the, well, I think the most difficult part is that you feel those things within yourself. You're like, oh, I know that I've felt that way before, and I'm so, uh, it's so painful to see someone just walking blindly into that feeling, um, you know. I think as an actor, I felt so excited to play Lena because I feel like there's so many roles today, particularly in TV and film. Um, it's like the cool Olympics. I, I call it sleepy status. Like a lot of the characters are written as, they have all the answers and they're super cool and shrugging their shoulders and winking and they're cooler than the person they're talking to. And after the person finishes their line, they pause and let the power shift back onto them. And, you know, That's I don't so find true. that very, <laughs> it's like very Ocean's Eleven. And yes. um, I think sometimes uh, what happens in writing right now is a sort of the quote unquote feminist overcorrect is to make the female parts like that now where, you know, where my characters used to be the wife with no answers. Now I'm the wife with all the answers magically, which only makes me one dimensional in the opposite way. Like it just, does, it's not really real. That's such a spot on point. And yeah. Lena to me was so the antithesis of that, of just so baldly um, uh, an engine of need and want and um, the opposite of Ocean's Eleven acting is <laughs> just like this hand reaching out at you in a way that almost seemed too young to be in the body of a 35 year old. Um, but I just was so excited to play that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, yeah, like he was saying, it's something that connects everybody. It's just some people hide it better than others. 
Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also what I try to do in my book is that these, these Greek level feelings, the, those, that engine of need or, or shame or whatever it is that we often feel we let out in our car alone or the bathroom or, you know, just to ourselves. And then we try to put on that face of everything's fine. Everything's cool. I'm an Ocean's Eleven character when actually we're all Lena in our car. Um, you know, I think that there's unity and power to be found in that feeling, uh, in being honest about those feelings, particularly with women. Greek level, I'm stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a writer. Um, <laughs> I love that. So um, tell us a bit about Mrs. Davis that you're shooting right now. It's like this kind of sci-fi vibe thing where you're this nun that's fighting against technology please yeah, it's the age-old story of a nun fighting technology um you know I uh have not been through the um I, I don't know what I'm allowed to say about it so I guess I'll say that it's uh, without offending anyone else it's it's maybe my it's my favorite job I've ever had. I just, I'm, it means so much to me. Um, yes, I'm, I am a nun and AI is present in the show and there are actors who memorize lines and costumes and it's going to be on Peacock. <laughs> I think that's all I can say. <laughs> we don't have a release date yet. So we're waiting on that still. Um, yeah. and the same with three women. So, um, right. Yeah, but we can read your book September 6th. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to go into our 20 questions portion of the podcast. And Great. You've already kind of answered my usual first question, which is what's your favorite thing about your current project? Or unless you want to add something to that. Um, oh, gosh, I, I would say uh I just laugh all day long. And I think that, you know, one of the lessons that I try to talk about in the book is that um, your own actualization of your dream and societal success are two very different things. And always remember that because it's easy to confuse the two, um, especially when you have the gift of doing your passion for a living. Uh, and I just laugh all day at this job. Uh, so being with the actors, really, Jake McDormand, I have a ton of scenes with him, and Andy McQueen, Margot Martindale, Beth Marvel, it's just some heavy hitters, and we're just, it, it feels like we're kids in a treehouse laughing our asses off. It's so much fun. I love it. I love Margot. She's, She's incredible. She plays Mother Superior. Of course she does. <laughs> the two of us in habits. Yeah. <laughs> My dream. Uh, I can't wait for that. Um, so going back in time, what was the moment you realized you wanted to act? Obviously, you've said both your parents were actors, but when did you realize yeah. it for you? Um, well, you know, I really grew up uh, backstage at my parents' plays um, in various off-Broadway and regional theaters uh, in New England. Um, and it was more, it was almost like backstage culture and my mom gossiping in a hoop skirt and a wig cap and uh you know 
Werther's Candies backstage. I was like, I want to be an actor for the Werther's Candies backstage <laughs> and gossiping about people and rolling your eyes at the, the a line reading through the PA being filtered through um, the dressing room. <laughs> I was uh, speaking of wig caps I was watching um a couple of your late night show appearances and and there's a great story that you told about meeting Julia Roberts um, yeah wearing a wig cap <laughs> wearing, <laughs> yeah but like a Daenerys Targaryen because I was playing Modine who had platinum platinum blonde hair I had at, at that point I was like six or seven months postpartum and as a result half of my hair had fallen out into the hair department. I was like, if we bleach my hair, I'm going to be bald. So I wore a wig and had to basically wear a, a white bald cap under this wig. And that's how I met Julia Roberts, the legend. I mean, American living the dream. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you have an early childhood person that was inspirational to you looking back? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I was just thinking about in high school, um, uh, Nana Mensa, who is an actress and writer, director, um, very successful now, uh, she was at school with me. Um, she was a senior when I was a freshman and I saw her play Viola in Twelfth Night, um, a production that I auditioned for to be you know spear carrier number three and didn't get and I had to do soccer and was devastated and I did uh, there's varsity junior varsity and then third soccer which is below junior varsity it's 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 basically if your arms are enemies and your legs don't speak to each other this is the soccer team for you and that's you what I did instead of 12 nights. This whole podcast is going to be me to laugh. <laughs> in the background. But watching her play Viola, it was so incredible. And I remember um, it felt different than watching the productions that my parents had done, that she was channeling something that I thought, oh gosh, those are some Lena level Greek feelings that I feel that I didn't know you were allowed to put into a part. And man, do I want to do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What posters did you have on your bedroom wall as a child or teenager? With a lot of Destiny's Child. I was, and they are, some of them are still there in my closet at home in Connecticut. <laughs> You're a closet um, Destiny's Child fan now. Yes. <laughs> well, I'd like to come out of the closet now and say I still believe in the next Destiny's Child album. When the, when's the album dropping, ladies? <laughs> uh and then I like Boy Meets World posters and um the catalog Delia's. Do you remember that catalog? No, I grew up in England, so I don't think we had that. What is that? Yeah, basically it's it, I, being old enough now that the fashion of my middle school is now irony wear for current pop stars. They're all like Olivia Rodrigo is very Delia's E as like a vintage thing like oh I, I remember Julie it was just it was just a catalog of you know emo girls and tank tops <laughs> sounds kind of cool to me but just saying it was super cool <laughs> <laughs> and now it's cool again yeah scary when you've lived through it the first time um yeah. what was the first movie you ever saw in a theater the first movie it honestly may have been um 
uh, my parents took me and my little friends to, they showed My Fair Lady at maybe the Paris Theater in New York. I grew up in New York City. Um, and it was like a, a, you know, specialty screening of the Audrey Hepburn, My Fair Lady. And they had an intermission, like old timey days. And I remember us feeling very uh, cultured as four-year-olds or whatever it was. Did they bring you ice creams in a tray with a strap around their neck? Oh, that would have been amazing. I remember and that. Now, <laughs> and now I'm working at um, the Warner Brothers lot and I've got, I, I really want to go see, they have a lot of the My Fair Lady costumes somewhere, but I may just start sobbing in front of them as I'm sure wow. everybody yeah. does. That's amazing. Um, what is a TV or film character that you wanted to be? I mean, Jesse from Saved by the Bell, I didn't know that Caucasians could have volume and root lift in their hair. <laughs> I was like, maybe one day I will have curls and hair that doesn't look like Ichabod Crane wisps in the wind. I just <laughs> felt like a colonial flaccid person and just really wanted her hair or, or, you know, I, I also loved Rachel from Friends. Her hair, it's like that seems more attainable to me. Maybe I could just layer it and make it shiny. I feel like hair, hair's a thing here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, what's the weirdest job you've ever had? Um, I worked for a ceramist uh, who made these beautiful clay mosaic. Uh, out of these little clay tiles um, to paint them. Uh, and my, my job was to make the little clay squares over and over again in a room with no ventilation or windows and then clean, it was a lot of mouse shit cleaning. That sounds yeah. slightly toxic. Uh, but I loved it because I was really trying to outsource depth to something. I was like, oh, this is, this is amazing uh, for the trauma well to trauma farm later <laughs> oh, well <laughs> brilliant um when was the last time you cried uh at work for in a scene which is so disturbing and um a couple of days ago and I can really feel you know the women in my brain or my nervous system being like so when you tell your body there's an emergency emotionally and then Five minutes later, you're like, just kidding, it's for my job. That's confusing and unhealthy and weird. I know, I'm sorry, but we're gonna keep doing it because it's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's like you experience trauma by proxy, just physically. I don't know if I experienced trauma, but I, I experienced trying to conjure tears for society to clap for me. That's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's one way to describe your job, I suppose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're packing your nuclear bunker. What do you take to watch? Um, honestly, all the bloopers that are available on YouTube of all the shows, because I was just talking about this with Jake McDormand, uh, one of the actors in the show, that I, there are, shows like Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I know all of the bloopers. I've never seen an episode. Um, I just find so much joy from people who can't stop laughing. Um, and I certainly am 
uh, I, after doing three women, which was so incredible, but so, so serious now doing this job, I'm like, oh, right. I forgot. I can't keep a straight face when someone's doing something funny. Um, so yeah, bloopers, British office bloopers are maybe the best. I can't even watch the British office at all. I find it so cringe. I'm yeah. not good at cringe. No, I'm not either. That's why I watch the bloopers. The <laughs> bloopers are, are joy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in this nuclear bunker, what are you taking to read? What am I taking to read? Um, well, here in New York, in LA, where I'm shooting but don't live, I know that every time I leave Brooklyn, like, oh, I never canceled my New Yorker subscription. So I know that in uh, right outside my door right now, apartment door is a mountain of New Yorker magazines. So maybe all those New Yorker magazines that I haven't read, but will reading those make me sad in the bunker? No, I'll just pretend it's society still exists and read them. So you're saying that your neighbors don't take your magazines when you leave them in a stack outside your door? That's a question that I don't know the answer to. I don't know because it's either out of spite they do take it or out of spite they don't. But I believe it's motivated by spite and I'm calling them out here and now on this podcast. Did you see that that guy on social media a few months ago who started a sort of viral campaign to find out which one of his neighbors had stolen his magazine from? No. <laughs> <laughs> he posted um complaining notes all over the building and the neighbors started posting replies telling him to stop and he just didn't stop and then eventually I think it was returned to him by someone's friend who'd been visiting the building it was a whole thing anyway now I'm worried about your your magazine (laughs) um so Back to the nuclear bunker, what luxury item would you pack? And by luxury, I mean something just non-essential and not books or something to watch. Luxury item, probably probably uh, some chocolate and maybe like, a, you know, a, a face mask or lotion or something. I'm not good at being, I play all these, feminine everything just so parts and I'm not good at that at all um so maybe in the bunker that's when I'd get good at that and have really good cuticles for no one I mean it's always um a thing that I think about when I ask this question to people and and I sort of vacillate between you know a lifetime supply of razors or hand lotion (laughs) right but for what purpose? Are we getting out of the bunker at the end of it? Or is the life in the well, that, bunker? That's the question, isn't it? Right. Do, do we yeah. care what we look like? Um, probably not. Probably not. Um, what is the toughest scene you've ever had to play? The toughest scene? Um, there were days on Glow where I could feel my body begging me to stop suplexing Allison Brie. <laughs> the suplex is the move where you're both, you stand facing each other, you both uh, bend over, your arms go over each other's back of the neck and I flip her over and we both land on our backs. And it feels mm-hmm. so powerful and so much fun, but it's a move designed to do once, maybe three times, and then you don't do it for a couple of days. And, you know, we would shoot 14 hour days and, uh, but God, it was so much fun and worth it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I remember interviewing you um, back when you were making Glow, um, R.I.P. Glow, and R.I.P. Um, both you and Alison Bree would always say, you know, uh, physically, this is for real. Like we, we really yeah. do wrestle, and it's a lot. <laughs> yes, totally. Yeah, and as much as I want Glow to come back, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I'll be wrestling ever again. Yeah. Uh, what's the time a character really got in your head and went home with you um I would say the hunt uh there was uh, I was just so obsessed with that character and um had all these ideas and really loved it and um I fought for the part and made a tape and another tape and wrote letters and then um, got the part. And then uh, there was a time where it conflicted with season three of Glow and Netflix was maybe not gonna let me out of um, my contract to do it. Uh, and I, which I write about in the book. And um, it was uh, a particular heartbreak. because I was like, oh no, 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 this one is sort of, um, staying with me in a way where I, I really need to exorcise it uh and luckily it worked out and um yeah so that one totally what advice would you give your younger self um I think to be uh kinder to yourself and the things that you feel um you know I I try to write about in the book that, uh, you know, my life as an actress is sort of the perfect allegory for being a woman in the world, whether you're an actress or, you know, a lawyer with split ends in Ohio, that you have to sort of cycle through selves to give whoever is in front of you the girl that they want. And um, I don't think that feeling is unique to actresses or to me as a kid. And I think that my fear was that, oh God, am I just these selves that I'm trying on and then in a vacuum or as an island I don't exist who am I without another person trying to get to like me and I think uh I think a lot of people feel that way and I wish I hadn't been so hard on myself for that mm -hmm. feeling I think we all feel that way again it's just how much do we admit it to ourselves yeah. or anyone else yeah yeah totally um, that's the human condition right there yeah. um right. What's the time you were starstruck? The time I was starstruck. The first celebrity I saw in person, remember the movie Can't Hardly Wait? Mm. I was obsessed with that movie and Ethan Embry is the lead. And I saw him, I saw him uh, the first time I came to LA, I was like 15 or something. And I saw him in, uh, on Melrose or something and I almost passed out. Brilliant. <laughs> The f I remember the first time I went came to LA, I saw Heather Graham walking down the street in Santa Monica. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> I've arrived. Yes. Um, what's your proudest working achievement so far? Proudest working achievement. I'm, I am proud of, you know, I'm, uh, I used to be so, so neurotic about 
my own work and watching it. And I remember the first Law and Order I was on, I invited a bunch of friends over to watch it. And the second I came on screen, I was like, I'm going to go to the bathroom and then lock myself in the bathroom sobbing about, you know, that I was the ugliest, worst, most horrible sounding person. And I guess I'm proud that I don't feel that way anymore. I don't think I'm brilliant or gorgeous, but I'm not debilitated by the sight and sound of my personage on screen. So I'm proud of uh, The Hunt. I'm proud of Glow. I I think I'm proud of Three Women. I haven't seen it yet, but I've had an incredible experience that really changed my life. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm proud that my neuroses don't take up as much space as they used to. When you say it changed your life, what do you mean exactly? Um, I try to, in the book, talk about uh, the vacillation between authentic self and presented self. And um, I think success as an actress, you have to spend a lot of time in presented self and fantasy and smoke and mirrors. And uh, I think that spending too much time in that realm can sort of make it harder to access that authentic self stuff and maybe make you a bad actor. Too many selfies is gonna make you a bad actor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Get that I on think, a t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and as I'm, you know, starting to age, honestly, out of uh, the, the Bratz doll stuff, the, the um, commodities, the physical commodities, I think I get closer to a more authentic self that I'm excited to put on screen, even if it's gonna look less centerfoldy. And, you know, this TV show, it's a lot of, um, it's, it's women at their basest selves being sexual. And uh, I think that was a really good exercise for me. Mm. I just want to go back to what you said about, you know, screening your first job on Law and Order, because it did remind me of that absolutely comedy gold moment that you recalled in a TV interview about being left in a body bag when yeah. everyone went to lunch. Yes. <laughs> you, you were just playing like, a, I suppose for most of your role, you're playing dead in that that episode. I, just, yeah, I was alive for a little bit. I. I think I had a handful of lines and then I was shot and left in an oil barrel and then put in a body bag and a scene happens, basically at the beginning of the scene, I'm zipped up in the body bag and a scene happens in front of the body bag and then they all walk away. And that scene happened to happen right before lunch. And I heard, you know, zip, the scene happens, cut, that's lunch, van doors close. I hear the vans drive away like foots, footsteps getting farther and farther away on gravel. And then one PA I hear, oh my God. And like gravel steps closer, closer, closer. And then unzip sunlight in my face. Let's get you out of there. And I, yeah, it was um, terrifying. Did you, did you cover for that PA and not tell anyone? Oh, of course not. I wasn't going to tell anyone. It was one of my first jobs. The fact that I was number <laughs> 630,000 on the call sheet. Like, thank you. Thank you for coming to get me. <laughs> I mean, I love Law and Order and I love watching older episodes because you see that almost everyone that you have ever seen on screen has had their time on Law and Order. 
Totally, yes. And my parents, as as New York actors, they've both been on Law and Order, and it's always on in my childhood home. And my parents were always like, "Oh, there's Dave, there's Kelly, there's a, you know, they, it's all theater actors from the '80s and '90s." There's something so charming about it. It's like community. I love it. Totally. Um, what's the most meaningful feedback you've ever had in work, in life, in any context? Um. You know, I think that uh, it's always sort of painful to put, or, or not painful, but um, cringy and scary to put stuff out there as an actor because so much of the time it's not metabolized in the way that you want it to be, or you feel misunderstood, or it's edited in a weird way. And I think that anytime somebody points to something you've done and says, this is what I got from it, and you go, oh man, that's exactly what I meant. <laughs> that that is such a rare alignment um and uh yeah it's uh, just visibility and clarity feels good <laughs> mm. what job do you think you'd be doing if this hadn't worked oh god i i don't know i really don't know um maybe i'd try to be a writer in some capacity but i don't uh I, I really don't know. Or maybe I'd, um, my, my mom sometimes directs Shakespeare plays for kids. And, you know, I, I've seen an, a nine-year-old Hamlet in his mother's riding boots. And like, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> maybe that's still on the cards for me. <laughs> that sounds really cool, actually. Yeah. Um, who is your hero? My hero. Uh, Right now it's my husband for making our lives work right now while I shoot these insane hours with a toddler at home. And I come, I'm very Blanche Dubois right now. I'm Blanche Dubois <laughs> uh, in a nuclear bunker. <laughs> That's kind of where my psyche is sitting. And he's like, here's a vitamin and a glass of water. Go take a nap. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Anytime you, I think of Blanche Dubois, I think I kind of get like clammy hands because it was just so. Yeah, the <laughs> origin of cringe. <laughs> exactly. Um, and last question, who would play you in the biopic of your life? Who would play me? Well, if we're going for true biopic where it, we're casting like a, a shinier, uh, gorgeous version of me <laughs> we'd go Jodie Comer for young me wow well, yes oh my god um, I didn't even realize you do actually have that same look and maybe Kieran Shipka Kiernan Shipka for young young and then Jodie Comer and then, spot on. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then maybe I could play me for late 30s and then uh well I mean, again, I don't think I look like these people. These people are no, prettier than me. Do. Then, this uh, is weird. I hadn't uh, even thought of those people, but that's amazing. I get it all the time, all the time. I'm sure you um, do, yeah, now that I think of it. And uh, probably, um, I mean, again, the shinier version, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer for the older, for the oh, older. Oh, I love her. Perfect yeah. choices. Yeah. yeah. Those were amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Have you thought about also branching out into casting? 
Oh, it's my favorite thing to do. I love, yeah, I have many text threads going of casting. I mean, that no one's asking us to cast things. We're like, you know who should play? And it's bit me in the ass before because for meetings where I'm trying to get a part, I'm like, you know who you should get for this? Who would be great? My agents (laughs) are like, did you pitch your friends? (laughs) Yeah, I did. But then... (laughs) <laughs> well you're really good at it that was um that's amazing yeah um Betty Gilpin thank you so much for being on 20 questions on deadline it has been thank you so much hilarious and so fun thank you thank you thank you thank you thanks thank you again Betty Gilpin for being on 20 questions on deadline don't forget to check out the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and read our awards line magazine in print and at deadline.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.